Amen. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34, the Holy Scriptures read, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned around then and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we ask it once again, as we do every week, that you would Teach us through your spirit. She would guide my words that I would not add offense to truth. For truth is already offensive enough to sinners who despise truth. We naturally hate the truth. But by your power, through your Holy Spirit, we can come to love truth. And Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So Father, I just pray for those here who may not know you who may be trying to approach you on their own terms. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for your great glory and for their good. And Father, I pray for the Christian here today who has forgotten grace, who has wandered into sin. I pray that they too might find encouragement and refreshment in the simplicity of faith, which saves. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to trusting people, trusting the wrong person can get you in a whole lot of trouble pretty quickly. In October of 1822, Gregor McGregor, that's a sweet name, a native of Glengill, Scotland, made a striking announcement, which was this. He said, behold, I am a prince who comes from a far land, the land of Poeus, which was, as he said, a little country off of, a, off of Honduras's Black River. He began telling people of how this country, it was a fertile land. It was a great place to live. Basically, it was, it was a land flowing of milk and honey. He told them how they had three harvests a year, not just one, but three. And the farmers were instantly like, that sounds nice. In fact, he told them that the water was so pure and refreshing that, quote, it could quench your thirst with just the smallest drink. The riverbeds, he said, were lined with gold. Wow, amazing. The trees, he said, overflowed with fruit, and the forests were so full of wild game that they could easily be hunted to fill your bellies all day long. 
It sounded like what he basically was describing here was the Garden of Eden, which compared to the dark and rainy, rocky soils of Britain made the people naturally want it to be true. They looked around like, this place is kind of miserable, especially in winter. Let's go there. This young prince went on to explain how the country had everything that it needed, except for just one thing. They lacked willing investors to help develop the country's untapped resources. Yeah, I see where this is going, right? And so after publishing numerous articles in the paper, bragging about how he was looking only for real investors who were real men. We don't want any sissies. We want the real guys. So if you're not one of those, don't even bother talking to me. Reverse psychology there a little bit. He began then selling bonds to thousands of Brits who invested their money into this prince's country. And this went on for a while. However, eventually, as he kept accumulating more money as time went on, eventually a group of about 200 would-be Poeus settlers sailed to Poeus only to discover that the land that they had been promised didn't actually exist. Shocking. And no longer did their money because the man then was gone. Now, maybe for you, you haven't invested in a fake prince who offered you riches if you would simply give him your riches. But who here this morning hasn't been swindled or ripped off or taken advantage of by at least somebody? We all have. Maybe you put your money in that guaranteed stock that a friend told you about who worked with somebody whose brothers, nephews, cousins, coworkers, neighbors, dog's owner had a stock tip on. And for some reason, it didn't quite pan out. Or maybe you believed that nice young man, maybe he's with the Indian accent, who said he worked for Microsoft. And he called you about that virus that was going to take all of your pictures and delete them. And if you didn't have him help you immediately, they would be gone. And of course, he needed his, your credit card to get that virus off. Whatever it was, the result was the same. And it made trusting people more difficult. And because it's difficult to trust people on account of their being untrustworthy people, we tend to not just give our trust out to anybody freely, do we? No. We expect people to earn it. We expect people to prove that they are trustworthy. We expect people to show by a pattern of behavior that we can count on them. You ever heard the phrase, not just talk the talk, but what? Walk the walk. We expect that. That builds our trust. And so similarly, church, in our text this morning, Matthew is trying to get us to trust somebody. That's what he's doing. And who is that someone? Well, that's actually kind of funny you ask because he happens to be a prince. Prince of peace. And what is this prince offering us? Well, a new country. In fact, there's a whole lot of gold. There's streets of gold, right? Uh, and he does offer water that he promises will satisfy your thirst with just one drink forever, okay? And all he's asking for return is a little deposit, and what is that deposit? Your money? No. Actually, he wants your life. 
So who's ready to sign up? <laughs> who's ready to lay down that deposit? Because that, without a doubt, is what Christ calls us to do as his disciples, is it not? He doesn't just want a little of our time. He doesn't just want a little of our money, a little of our effort. No, when Christ calls a man, says Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he bids him to come and die. Matthew 10, 39 says this, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 9, 23, similarly, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In our text this morning, Matthew understands the dilemma we're facing. He understands that we have a whole lot of fake princes out there offering us all sorts of good things for an exchange. He understands our dilemma. And the dilemma is, how can we possibly believe this prince's claims when so many other princes have come along and duped us? How can we ever trust this Jesus? To make matters worse, Matthew lived in a time where there were so many different people who claimed to be princes. People who would come along making outrageous claims. Making claims actually very similar to what Jesus made. And why were they doing that? Well, they were doing that because in the Old Testament, it prophesied of somebody who would come who would actually deliver on those claims. They would be able to fulfill those claims. This person would bring eternal life to the people. He would set them free. He would heal them and heal their land. And the way that the Old Testament indicated how you would know the right guy from the wrong guy was that the lame would walk, the blind would see, and the prisoners would be freed. For example, the prophet Isaiah, who lived almost a thousand years before Jesus, here's what he said. He said, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. This is talking about the Messiah, the promised coming one. Isaiah 42, 7, he would come and to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And this is talking, as we know, because you've been, if you've been with us for the book of Matthew, you know back in chapter one and, 1 and 2 what this is about. This is spiritual bondage. This is freeing people from Satan's tyranny, correct? From sin and death. And so in our passage this morning, you know what Matthew's telling us? He's telling us that the one who will do all of this has finally come. That's what he's telling us. The Messiah has come. That's what we celebrate at Christmas every year, now looking 2,000 years back. But for Matthew, it just happened. The Messiah has finally come. And so Matthew is writing his account of Jesus' life in order to get us to put our trust in this prince. Matthew says, I know you've been duped in the past. I know false princes have promised you the world while taking your wallet. I know you've been lied to, deceived, tricked, and conned, sometimes even by pastors, sadly. But Matthew says, believe me, this man is the real deal, for he is the Prince of Peace, the Son of the living God, who has not only the authority, but the power that we truly need. And so what do we need? Well, three things, Matthew tells us. Jesus has the authority to give us what we need, and those three things we need are life, cleansing, and forgiveness. Let's look at this first one. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. 
Now, if you're new with us for our study through the book of Matthew, two things. One, you can catch up online. However, two, you need to know Matthew's main thesis right now for this text. I can't re-preach the first nine and a half chapters because we'll be here till next Sunday. But Matthew's thesis, I'll give you that, and here's what it is. What's a thesis? First off, my fellow grammar nerds, a thesis is the main point. It's the so what of the argument, right? What are, you, what are you telling them? What are you talking about? Get to the point. The main chase is what a thesis is. And the main reason Matthew's writing his thesis is this. He wants us to know that Jesus is the king. Not just a king, not just a ruler, not just a powerful leader or a wise, great, good teacher like so many people would tell us. Jesus isn't just a good teacher either. He's the king, which means he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords, and that's Matthew's thesis. It's the reason he's writing, because he wants you, every one of us, to put our trust in this king, in this prince, this the king. And so in our text this morning, Matthew gives us really big reasons to trust Jesus as king. And here's the biggest reason of it all. Jesus has supreme authority as king. He has not only authority, but he has power. And we see that in Jesus's authority over life. If you think about that for a minute, wouldn't you want to trust in a king who has authority and power over life and death? It's a pretty good king. And so that's a king we should put our trust in. That's a king we should trust with our lives. What do I mean by trusting him with our life? Well, I mean this, and I mean every single person here this morning. If you're sucking in oxygen today, you are trusting in someone or something to give your life meaning and purpose. You are. There is no, the Buddhists are wrong. You cannot detach from everything and have no attachments. You can aim for it. You're not going to do it. There's a God-shaped hole in every single one of our hearts, and we got to fill it with something. That's what we're talking about. We all do this, every single one of us. What kind of things do we look to to find meaning and purpose in our life? Obvious ones, right? Job, career, being successful. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you're like looking to your money, right? You accumulate enough of that, and you feel like, hey, I've got a nice boat. I've got a nice house. I've got the cabin. I'm successful. Maybe you want to be a pastor of a growing church. Maybe that's what you're looking to for your identity. I, I know at least one person who struggles with that. You can name anything, even good things. They can easily become the center of your identity. The reason you get up in the morning, the thing that puts that little extra hop in your step. Any of these things can become what we look to in our life to make us say, as long as I have that, I'm happy. As long as that's in my life, things are good. And you know what this is called in the Bible? This is called idolatry. That's what this is. It's idolatry. And the thing about idolatry is we are all idol worshipers at heart. Every single one of us, from little baby Nora to the oldest person here, we are all naturally born idol worshipers, which makes sense why we have the first 10 commandments going in the order that they go in. What's the first Commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? You shall make no idols. 
What does that mean to make an idol? Is that like a carved moose with eagle wings and like 16 eyes that we bow down and put our money before and worship and stuff? Well, it could be, but more likely as Westerners in America, we're, we're kind of beyond that, you know, like we don't, we don't need that. Instead, we spend our whole lives focused and fixated on our job, our career, the boat, fishing, whatever. That's what it means to serve an idol. And this means to make an idol then, what is it then? It's not just to carve a wooden object. We don't do that. To make an idol is to worship or live for something first and foremost that's not God. That's simply what idolatry is. It's to love something more than God. It's to find your satisfaction in something that's not God. It's to find satisfaction, joy, and hope in the creation instead of the creator. What we do when we do this is we look at it and we say, if I have that, I'm happy, and if I don't, I'm miserable. That's all idolatry is. It's to center your life on something that's not God, which breaks the first two commandments, and we all naturally do this from the start. We are born idolaters, and our idolatry is also called something else in the Bible. It's called sin. And sin separates us from a holy, sinless God. Idolatry, which is sin, then, as we know, church, right, leads to death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, which is judgment of a righteous and holy God. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he's saying what? I bring life, not this other stuff. You're not going to find life in any of that stuff. Only I bring life. That's what he's saying. Not the lesser gods, not these idols we look to, to give our lives happiness. You want to know one of the biggest problems of looking to created things instead of the creator to find happiness? It's this. Whatever you look to is suffering from the law of thermodynamics. What's that? Breaking down. Everything is. Look in the mirror. You are breaking down, especially the older you get. You notice the more you're breaking down. I'm getting these things under my eyes, and I'm like, what's going on? I'm 30. Like, it's just the way it is. Like, we get the wrinkles. We get the gray hair. I found a few of those recently. This is the way it goes. We are all breaking down, and that's the thing with everything. Everything's breaking down. Whatever you look to to give your life that ooh, ooh, aha happiness, it's going to fail you. It's going to wither. It's going to decay. It's not going to last. And for a lot of us, you know what a, a big temptation is? Family. Right? Children. Spouse. Parents. We can easily look to family in an idolatrous way in which we center our identity upon that. Whether it be your spouse or your children, or as this ruler came to find out, even our children, though, can be taken from us suddenly at a very young age. In verse 18, this ruler comes to Jesus after having lost his daughter. He says, Jesus, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So what happens? Well, it tells us that Jesus agrees and goes with him. In verse 23, 
It says that when Jesus arrived at the house, there's what's going on in the scene? Well, there's these flute players in the crowd. They're all making this big commotion. Commotion is the word Matthew uses. And why are they doing that? Like, this is a funeral, right? Like, what, that, that seems kind of inappropriate. What's, what's with the flute players? Are they having a party or what? No. What is going on here is their culture did funerals very different than our culture. How do we do funerals in our culture? Stand around like this, right? It's very solemn. Some crying, but you keep it under control, right? That's how we do funerals. But in Jesus' day, that's not how they did funerals. In fact, in Jesus' day, they would actually pay professional mourners who would come to the funeral. They would learn, sometimes learn the whole family's name and be like, oh, member, brother, so-and-so. Oh, he, oh, he was so great. It's like, to me, that's weird. It's like, you didn't even know who he was. But they would come in and they would cry out and wail. They're basically actors. And they would also hire flutists, flautists, whatever, flute players who would come in there and play music for the whole time in order to add to this whole wailing or commotion that was going on. That's how they did funerals. And that's how we know, like, yeah, this girl's dead. The funeral started. And so that's what the commotion's about. And so that's the scene. Jesus arrives, and as verse 24 says, he's like, go away. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. And what do the people do? They laugh at him. And that laughing, actually, the better way to understand that is that they scoffed in unbelief at him. That's what they're doing. They're like, whatever. Look at this guy. Look at this Jesus. He's coming to heal. He's the great healer. I'm certainly they had heard of him. He's coming to heal. But it's like, you're too late, man. She's dead. You're not. What a silly guy, right? That's the way they viewed it. However, did you notice what Jesus said to the crowd? He didn't say to her, the girl is dead, but don't worry. I'm going to do some resurrecting here. He didn't say that. What does he say? He says, the girl is not dead, but what? Sleeping. Now, is Jesus just confused? Are they confused? Is the girl really just taking a really deep nap? This like Romeo and Juliet stuff where she took something and just can't detect a heartbeat and everyone, they're going to bury her alive type thing? No, that's not what's going on here. And the Jews would have understood what Jesus meant by sleeping. That's why they laughed. Because here's the point. Jesus is saying that with him, death isn't death. Death is nothing but a nap. And why is death with Jesus but sleep? Because of resurrection. As the prophet Isaiah wrote, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust, right? From dust you are until dust, and unto dust you shall return. That was a curse upon Adam. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. That's a promise of what this future Messiah was going to bring. In John 11, Jesus says this. He says, I say to her, I, I said, he said to the woman, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, even though he still dies, yet he shall live. That's a bold claim. That's a whole lot bolder than a mere river that's got gold in it. Which is then proven to be true when Jesus reaches over, grabs this little girl by her cold, dead, lifeless hand, and he picks her up into life. It's that simple. 
In a few weeks, we are going to celebrate Thanksgiving, where we get together with family and friends. And there's something I heard a while back that kind of has stuck with me over the years, and it's a little bit haunting at first, but here's what it is. Thanksgiving is a pretty joyful time, right? Usually we get together with family, we get together with friends, uh, we have a bunch of food, lots of sugar, it's a great time. And as a wonderful time as it is, inevitably, one person sitting at that Thanksgiving table is going to come to see the death of every person sitting around that table. That's, that's just the reality. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. That's the truth. Okay? One of them will outlive the rest. They will see funeral after funeral. They will bury brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, and even sons and daughters. And in that moment, if your parent, if your sibling, or even your child is the source of your joy and happiness, if you don't have true resurrection hope, do you know what it's going to do to you? It's going to crush you. It's going to absolutely destroy you. But when your loved one suddenly dies and is ripped from you, even if it's your young daughter, who as a friend of mine had happened to him, cried out suddenly in the night, Daddy, he came in, picked her up in her arms, and she died in his arms at the age of like four. When that happens, there's only one thing that's going to get you through that. And it's the one who has authority over life and death. The one who will, by the grace of God, one day so very soon, reach down and pick up your little daughter's lifeless hand and raise her up into everlasting life. Church, Jesus doesn't simply raise this girl to show how powerful he is. He's not doing parlor tricks. He's not trying to gain a big crowd, recognition, respect, or religious fame. No, he does so in order to show us a powerful truth, and it's that he has power over life and death. And if we trust in him with our lives, as he invites us to do, we can, even in the most deepest pain in anguish and tears, confidently sing, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus have authority to give life, but secondly, he has authority to give cleansing. In verse 20, a woman approached Jesus as he was traveling, hoping to be healed. And the text says that she suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 long years, right? And most likely, this woman suffered from addition, from a condition, I'm going to botch this term, whatever, just act confident and act like you know it, men or hagia. I said that right. Go with it. It's a disease that causes the menstrual flow to basically continue on, which not only would produce severe weakness from the anemia due to the low iron levels that would come from that, but it also would make her ceremonially unclean. Now, the short version of a long explanation of what that means to be ceremonially unclean is that in the Old Testament times, under the Old Covenant, there was a whole lot of stuff that would make you ceremonially unclean, which meant like put stip- it basically put stipulations on you. You couldn't worship. You couldn't touch other people during that time. Things like that. 
And because this woman was ceremonially unclean, this woman would have been a social outcast. And there's actually a high likelihood that her husband would have divorced her as well. We don't know that, but knowing the Jewish approach to divorce back then, there's a high likelihood that that would have happened. But even if it hadn't, whoever touched her, as we said, temporarily became unclean, and so they too would have been barred from the temple or the synagogue, which was actually kind of the center of Jewish life. And so realizing that she couldn't touch Jesus since she was forbidden to do so as an unclean woman, she says to herself, if I only touch his garment, then I will be made well. If that's not a picture for the cleansing that Jesus brings, I don't know what is. Stick with me here. This is, this is the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. What do I mean by that? I mean this. All right. So in Mark's account of this healing, he says that the woman tried everything to be healed. In fact, Mark says she spent all she had and was no better off, but actually grew worse. He's ditching on, he's like dissing on doctors a little bit there, right? Which, you know, Luke was probably, because Luke's a doctor, he writes this account, he's probably a little annoyed by it, maybe. Now, Mark tells us that she spent all she had and she was no better off, but actually grew worse. Which happens to be just like every man-made religion out there, which is every religion out there, except for Christianity, because every religion out there says, yes, there's a problem. We have a serious spiritual problem, and it's got to be dealt with, right? That's what religion's dealing with. It's dealing with spiritual problems. It's helping us reach spiritual enlightenment, whatever, you know, everybody has a different answer for the spiritual dilemma that we're in. They got a remedy for it. Well, what's every religion out there's remedy for the Spiritual condition of humanity? Well, obviously, it's that we have to do something about it. We got to find a good spiritual doctor. We got to find one who knows the right stuff that we need, who can tell us what we got to do to deal with this situation, because it's all about you doing the right stuff to fix your spiritually broken condition. That's every religion in the world, bar one. All of these religions tell you that more good behavior, more good behavior, plus less bad behavior equals godliness. That's it. Believe in God. Try to be a good person. That's, then you're good. Probably. Yeah you, yeah, you are. That's kind of the approach. But it's wrong. It's absolutely dead wrong. For just as there was nothing that this woman could do to achieve healing for her physical dish, condition, there is nothing that we can do to achieve healing for our spiritual condition. Nada, zilch, nothing. We can spend all of our money on it if we want. It's still not going to solve it. But do you know what will? A mere touch of faith in Christ. And it won't just clean you up. It'll cleanse you completely from the inside out. Isaiah 1, 18 through 19 says this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And all this woman had to do was touch Jesus' garments to experience that. That was it. Similarly, in Mark six fifty six, it says, And wherever Jesus came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it 
were made well. Okay, super focus mode here. If you zoned out, zone in here, because this gets even neater. Quick question, what did they have to do to touch to be healed? What does the text say? They had to touch Jesus' garment, right? No, wrong. Pay attention to the text. What does it say? (laughs) The fringe or the edge of his garment, right? There you go. I'll put it up there so you can see it. It's also in Matthew. You should have your Bible open anyway, right? The, the edge of the garment is what it says. And this is interesting because this, I don't like to get into Greek words, but it's helpful here, so we'll do it. The same Greek word here used for edge is, tra- is also used in Matthew 23, 5, and it's talking about the religious leaders and the edge of their garments. And you know how it gets translated there often? It gets translated there, the tassels of their garment. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the tassels. Okay, one more piece of the puzzle. Stick with me and then the payoff. What were the tassels for? Okay, this, think Old Testament. This goes back to Numbers 15. Numbers 15, 37 through 41. Stick with me. The payoff's coming. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Why? And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. I'm going to start geeking out here. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you inclined to whore after. You shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. The tassels were basically the first WWJD bracelet. That's what they were. WWJD just copied the tassels. All right? They were a visual reminder of God's laws and commandments to remind the people to obey them, to be holy because God is holy. Except that's kind of a problem, isn't it? Because who here is holy? I sin. I don't know if you know this, but pastors sin a lot. You sin a lot. Who's holy? Who amongst us can live up to this? None but one is the answer. For Christ is the only one whose tassels perfectly picture the obedience that is required in the instructions we find here in Numbers about God's law. He's the only one. The tassels remind us then of our sinfulness and his holiness that we could never in our own efforts, even if we spent all of our money on spiritual doctors, trying to find a cure, doing everything that we can, going to church every Sunday, you know, trying to do less, thing, less bad things and more good things. It would never satisfy the holy demands of a holy God. The tassels remind us, church, of our sin and our suffering and our sickness that you and I cannot alleviate by ourselves no matter how much good works we throw at it. But when and only when we've exhausted our efforts, we come to the end of the law and are trying to be satisfied and found holy through it. When we come to the end of that effort, we've exhausted it. Only then can we find the cleansing of our own as we reach out in faith not in our own, in Christ, as we reach out in faith to Christ and find cleansing in him by merely touching his tassels. You see that? As the psalmist writes, 
Come, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. We can never put those tassels on ourselves and live up to what those tassels are symbolizing, can we? But Christ can. Christ did. And his perfect life is given to us by a mere touch of faith. Praise God for that. Jesus has the authority to give life. Jesus has the authority to give cleansing. And finally, Jesus has the authority, and this is the biggest one of all, to give forgiveness. After the woman touched Jesus, it says that she instantly received healing. And Jesus turns to the woman and he says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. We're going to do two great things today. Stick with me. I think it's worth it. The word Matthew uses here is an interesting one. It's sozo. He talks about that your faith has made you well. That made you well, it's it's sozo, okay? And what does sozo mean? It just simply means to be saved. Interesting. He essentially says, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. Why does he say it like that? I mean, it wasn't like she was dying. You know, it was just kind of a crummy condition. Why does he say it saved you? Well, I think it's because her faith saved her. That's pretty deep, right? This guy's a smart dude. But if her faith saved her, then she really must have had some pretty strong faith, right? Not only were her, was she physically saved by Jesus' healing powers, but her faith also spiritually saved her. So she must have definitely eaten her spiritual Wheaties for breakfast every day to have a faith like that. Which means if I want to be saved, I better start doing what she did, right? Is that the point of the text? No, says the church. <laughs> I mean, the thing that makes it difficult, though, is in all three of these healing accounts found in this chapter, Jesus seems to respond and say, in accordance with your faith, healing. So is faith some commodity then? Some religious work that we kind of build up through our really going to believe? Ah, got it up to 7 out of 10. Here you go. Am I saved? Is that what faith is? Does the degree of healing that we receive from Jesus somehow correlate with the strength or the size of our faith? No. Interestingly enough, in Mark and Luke's account of, because four gospels, it's all telling life about the life of Jesus. Mark and Luke tell us about this account from their perspective. Okay. Cause the disciples were here. They saw this and it says, they say that once the woman touched him, it says that Jesus noticed something. What did he notice? Power went out from him. He's like, who touched me? All the, Peter, all the disciples are like, uh, you're in a crowd, Jesus. A lot of people touched you. And he's like, no, somebody touched me for power went out from me. And this is interesting because what this means is it wasn't the strength of her faith that saved her. It was the strength of the object of her faith that saved her. That is a massive, massive difference. It wasn't the strength of her faith that saved her. It was the strength of the object of her faith that saved her. And what was the object of her faith? Christ. Not her ability to muster up super confident faith or her ability to just really believe. No, it was simply to throw herself at the mercy of God. For he is the only one who can bring 
healing. He, for he is an all-powerful God. Faith doesn't heal us, church. God does. Faith doesn't give us life. God does. Faith doesn't cleanse us. God does. Faith doesn't forgive us. God does. We must never forget this. We easily do though, right? But we must never forget this. We must never forget that the only reason that we can experience life, cleansing, and forgiveness is because Christ gave up his life for ours upon the cross. Christ cleansed us. How? By taking our uncleanliness and giving us his cleanliness. And Christ brought us forgiveness by taking upon himself the full wrath of a holy, righteous God that we deserved. And he bore it upon himself. He bore it upon himself for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. And because Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, and only because of that can we experience healing. What kind of healing? What are we talking about here? What does this mean? Same kind of healing that he experienced. Full resurrection into eternal life. A new body. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Remember? What's, what's sleeping? What's death to Jesus? It's a nap. That's all it is. This is our hope, church. This is our song. As we're about to sing in a moment, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. Is Christ your hope in life and death? Is Christ your confidence? Maybe he is, but this morning your hope has been wavering. Maybe your confidence is a little bit shaken, and there's a million and one reasons that that could be the case for you, but maybe it's this reason. Maybe it's that you've forgotten that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith that saves you. Maybe you're starting to look to your tassels again and wondering if you just got to do, you know, do what they say, do the law, do enough of it. And if you're looking to the faithfulness of your tassels instead of Christ, I have two words of advice for you. Stop it. Don't do that. Get your eyes off of your sin and back onto your Savior, who alone can perfectly satisfy the righteous demands of the laws which those tassels represent. And then when you've done that, get back up, shake off the guilt of sin, don't live in it, don't let the accuser of the brother keep you there, and put on the confidence of Christ as you serve him with joy and with gratitude. Yes, church, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Maybe you're here this morning and you can't say Christ is truly your hope in life and death, but maybe you either want him to be, or you're not sure and you have more questions about what that means and what that looks like. 
Well, let's deal with the first one. If you want him to be, it's really as simple as reaching out by faith and grabbing a hold of him. Grab even the tassels is all you need to do. It doesn't matter if you're seven or 70. It's the same thing. Just a touch of faith will resurrect you spiritually into new life. It will heal you. And ultimately, one day, bring the ultimate healing, which is no more sin, no more death, no more suffering, as we are resurrected in life to new bodies. All it takes is a touch of faith. Remember what Jesus says, if we have faith as large as a mustard seed, little tiny seed, what will that faith do? Move mountains. Now, the point isn't literally we got to exercise our faith and move mountains. The point is, you see what, through the power of God, what faith will do for it? It'll save you. It'll save us. Not because our faith is powerful, but because the object of our faith is powerful, which is an all-powerful God. Faith is the conduit just getting us to the all-powerful God that God gives us. And so by grace, through faith then, simply confess your sins to him. For as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that doesn't mean that every time we sin, we lose that righteousness, does it? No. We are sozo. We are saved. And yes, we will sin. Yes, we will fall into error. Yes, we will have problems and fall short of the glory of God. But by God's grace, Christ is our righteousness. And that comes by faith. If that's you this morning... And maybe this is the first time you've considered this and right now you're saying, I'm going to trust in Christ. Tell someone that you have so that we might celebrate with you. When we come to receive the full forgiveness of God found in Christ, we will not only experience life and cleansing to at least to some degree in this life, but ultimately we will experience the eternal life and total cleansing that comes when Christ will one day so, so very soon raise our mortal bodies. Romans eight eleven says this, if in the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. When we trust in Christ by faith, the spirit of God lives in us as the guarantee of our inheritance that's being spoke of here that's coming. It's a pretty bold claim. Is it not? For many, they'll tell you it's an unbelievable claim. Yeah, it's, it's fairy tales. Yeah, it's good for kids. Hear me when I tell you this morning. It's good for adults. It's good for everyone. For this is a trustworthy claim. Hear me. Hear the words of Matthew, who is telling us this is an absolutely trustworthy claim. And though we don't have time this morning to dive further into why it is a trustworthy claim beyond what we already have, if you have questions about the trustworthiness of this claim, please come talk to me. Come talk to somebody. Because we would love to sit down with you. And show you how, how you might know that you have eternal life. The Apostle John, who was a colleague of Matthew's, writes to us saying, If we believe in him, we will not be put to shame. Trusting in Christ is the whole point of why Jesus came 
to bring salvation, to bring healing for us. And it comes simply by faith. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So do you have eternal life? If so, live in it. If not, what are you waiting for? Reach out. Grab it. Father, I thank you for this text. And Lord, I just pray for your people and for all those here. I pray especially for the one who might not know you, who has been trying to approach you by their righteousness. And so today, Lord, we ask that through your spirit, they would come to see that we are saved completely and entirely by grace through faith in Christ, not of works, so that no one will boast, for only you are the one who gets to boast in the salvation of sinners. Father, I pray for the Christian here today who is not delighted by this wonderful truth, who hasn't been living their life in a way that shows their appreciation for the new life they've been given. I pray that you would renew their passion, that you would renew their zeal for the salvation they have and for the glory of Christ and give them a desire to know you better. Help us to be like Jesus. Help us to reach out to a lost and dying world who is in their sickness, who is in their suffering, who is in their spiritual death and is marching on their way to eternity under the wrath of a holy God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.